BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Marisa Lagos. After a tough year for the restaurant industry, Bay Area counties are relaxing their pandemic restrictions. Most are now allowing some indoor dining in addition to outdoor tables. But there's still a long way to go for these businesses. We're going to hear from restaurateurs about their experience this past year and their hope for the future. And we want to hear from you. Are you a restaurant worker, a patron? Will you return to eating out? What questions do you have about the industry and safety? That's next on Forum, right after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Marisa Lagos. It is safe to say that restaurants were among the hardest hit by this pandemic. Nationally, an estimated 100,000 of them closed. By some estimates, nearly half were in California. But many got creative to survive. And now, as more people get vaccinated and restrictions begin to lift, there's hope that this industry could get a new lease on life. But there's a lot of work to be done before dining establishments can hope to look like their pre-pandemic selves. This hour, we talked to experts, including several chef owners, about how they've fared, if there are any silver linings, and how they plan to move forward. And we want to talk to you. Are you eating out? What have you missed most? Are there dining changes you want to keep? And Or do you work in restaurants? How, what's the last year been like for you? Call us now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also connect on Twitter and Facebook. We're K- at KQED Forum. Or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Joining me for this hour are Tanya Holland, chef and owner of Brown Sugar Kitchen in Oakland. Good morning, Tanya. Good morning, Maria. How are you? Good. Thanks for being here. We also have with us Jessie Ziff-Cool. She is founder chef of Flea Street Cafe in Menlo Park. Hi, Jessie. Good morning, Maria. And Luke Sai, who is food editor at KQED. Luke, welcome to Forum and to KQED. We're very excited to have you. Thank you so much for having me. 
Um, so I want to start, Tanya, with you um, and then maybe hear from Jesse as well on this. Um, but can you take us back to last March and the moment maybe that you realized how, that things were really, um, you know, changing? What went through your head and, and what were your kind of first moves a year ago? Um, well, I was in the airport um, that Sunday night coming back from an event in Colorado, you know, and so there was just all this mumbling and people were very anxious and uh, it's very strange. Um, and so I kind of knew, well, those days were over, you know, I would travel to do some cooking collaboratives, uh, collaborations with uh, fellow chefs around the country. And there was a lot of events planned. Um, got to the restaurant. My first concern is always what's going to happen to all the perishables. You know, there's just, you know, I have very limited freezer space because I don't freeze a lot of items. So we had to, you know, cook things off and give them away. Um, we had to start, you know, laying off people or furloughing them. Um, and yeah, it was just, um, it was a little bit unsettling. Yeah. Um, but you know, I just went with the flow. I've been through a few <laughs> challenges before in my life. I think that's kind of how it pro probably is just to own a restaurant anyway, Jesse's of cool, yeah. right? You got to go with the flow. Um, what, I mean, what were your expectations and, and yeah, what went through your mind last March as this all kind of came crashing down around us? Well, Stanford had closed. So one of my cafes on campus had closed. I had gotten a call about 830 at night, um, that we had to shut everything down. I was standing in the dining room of Flea Street, my head spinning, and people were starting to talk about it. Someone said to me, so what are you nervous about? Are you afraid you won't get any food, any ingredient? I said, that is the last of the worries. And the next day I sat every single employee down and said, are you going on unemployment or do you want to work? And those who wanted to work, I said, you're hired for minimum wage. I have no idea what we're going to do but let's do this together. So we built a crew. I also got a call from Stanford um, to start up a nonprofit, Meals of Gratitude, to start sending meals to frontline healthcare workers, uh, which is one of the ways we survived. We ended up sending uh, 29,000 meals um, and uh, raising $450,000. So at the, this all happened March 17th. So what was I doing? Uh, going back into action and like Tanya, trying to save whatever I could. But first for me was to try to get my staff from, um, uh, from uh, going into complete despair. Yeah, I bet. And did you said you, you uh, kind of rehired everyone at minimum wage? I mean, how is that different than where, where they were before, how you were paying folks before? Did you have to really rethink the kind of financial structure? Yes, we had a, a the old model was back of the house in front of the house. We immediately started something called heart of the house. And every single person uh, made minimum wage. Um, in the past, the kitchen staff were paid anything from $19 for dishwashers all the way up to $33 for cooks. Front of the house, previous front of the house were paid minimum wage. I had to take everybody in a room and say, um, we are going to do our best through a 20% service charge that would be added on to every to-go order. Um, we will divide that equally amongst all of you. And we're going to try to to make sure that you have enough money for food, gas, and rent, and to take care of your children. Wow. I had no idea how, but we did it. So that's 
I just flattened everything with heart of the house. Yeah. Luke, I, I mean, you have more of the uh, bird's eye view of this. You obviously are talking to chefs and owners. You're you're talking to folks within the industry. I mean, how does what Tanya and Jesse are saying square with kind of what, what you were hearing a year ago and how you've seen restaurants sort of progress throughout the past the past year during this pandemic? Yeah, I just remember I was working at Eater SF at the time. And I remember, uh, you know, right after the announcement of the shelter in place came down, um, doing an article um, where I just, you know, reached out to probably a dozen um, different chefs all around the Bay Area. Um, And I think, you know, the headline of the story that I ended up writing was, this is like, Armageddon was like the start of the, the headline, um, which was a direct quote um, from a restaurateur that I had spoken to, you know, and, and, and folks I spoke to just talked about, they were just in shock, you know, and, and a lot of restaurants um, had laid off, you know, 90% of their staff. Um, they talked about sort of being worried that, you know, kind of the city and, and local governments wouldn't be able to provide much support, um, talked about sort of how daunting it was that they were going to have to, you know, try to do takeout only for perhaps many months um, moving forward into the future. Um, Some of them were worried that, you know, their insurance companies wouldn't pay them out, you know, for the loss of income that they were experiencing. And I think, you know, I was just rereading that article prior to coming on this show and it just um, it's it's sort of sobering just to note that every single one of those predictions, even the ones that seem most doom and gloom, basically came to reality. <laughs> That's basically the reality that um, restaurants have been living in for this past year. So I think, you know, I think that very much echoes kind of what um, Tanya and Jesse were talking about. <laughs> We are talking about restaurants reopening and how they fared during the pandemic with Tanya Holland, chef and owner of Brown Sugar Kitchen in Oakland, Jesse Zivkul, founder chef of Flea Street Cafe in Menlo Park, and Luke Sai, our food editor at KQED. Uh, are you a restaurant worker or are you eating out? What have you missed most? Are there other any dining changes you want to keep? Call us at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Connect on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or Email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Um, I, you know, Luke, you mentioned takeout, and I do think that that's been just as a as a regular person who does not in the restaurant industry. One sort of interesting thing about this is it does seem like some restaurants. Obviously, I mean, many have had to close and then others are thriving. They've figured out new models and takeout business. Um, Tanya Holland, I mean, in every crisis, there is some opportunity, right? Like what have been um, the the good lessons of this year in terms of on the business side? Are, are there things that Brown Sugar Kitchen has been able to do that maybe you weren't doing before? Well, we definitely weren't doing takeout at this level. Um, in my new location in uh, downtown Oakland, Um, It just didn't have the same sort of walk up counter, you know, construction. So um, that was definitely an adjustment we had to make. I wasn't using the delivery services because I had a full dining restaurant with full service and, um, um, you know, hospitality, which is what I, I thrive on, you know, providing experience for people, not 
having it packed up for them to go. Um, it's definitely, you know, has kept us going, which I'm very appreciative of. Um, it's not, you know, the only thing that has kept us going and we're definitely not, you know, at the same kind of revenue levels we were at or profitable by any uh, means. Um, but, you know, just making adjustments to what we're serving. I had to reduce the menu offerings and, um, you know, it's not what, it's just not what I um, had dreamed of, you know, yeah. as a, as a restaurant tour. So it's just definitely been an adjustment. I mean, Jesse, have, um, what about, you know, rethinking your menus or changing what you're making? Was, was that part of this calculation as you all had to shift from being largely in, you know, indoor in-house dining to trying to think more creatively? Prior to COVID, I didn't even have to go containers in the restaurants. <laughs> so very quickly, along with our Felicia is 40, turned 40 years, um, had its anniversary on August 28th. Similar to our philosophy, we wanted to keep everything similar. So we kind of threw the dice and did not change the model. We found um, packaging that was completely compostable, did everything um, reusable or um, recyclable. And we didn't lower prices and we kept our menu the same. As I said, it was throwing the dice. Mm -hmm. And we decided to, because we are a place um, of celebration, um, we decided to put that all in a bag. So we um, packaged up as much as we could. So when people got that bag home and opened it, they felt our love. They felt our hospitality. They felt our touch of detail. They felt like the packaging was different and it worked. We That's had so special. I love that. <laughs> um, well, it was magical for them too. And at, at a time when they were, they couldn't get that anymore. And yeah. all the little touches, I think, um, touched from our heart and our, um, our service to them after all those years. So we are very grateful to the community for keeping us alive. Yeah. Um, and celebrating during a time of not very much celebration. We all need some happiness. Yeah. Um, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to talk more about safety and, and how these restaurateurs are thinking about that. We're also going to bring in um, a doctor who is an infectious disease specialist. My, uh, We are talking about restaurant reopening and how they've fared during the pandemic. Um, if you want to weigh in, please give us a call at 866-733-6786. You can connect on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. You can also email your questions to forum at kqed.org. We'll be right back. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Marisa Lagos. We are talking about restaurants reopening and how they have fared during the pandemic with Tanya Holland. She's chef and owner of Brown Sugar Kitchen in Oakland. Jesse Zivkul, co-founder, or founder chef of Flea Street Cafe in Menlo Park, and Luke Sai, food editor here at KQED. Um, so I want to get into the aspect of safety because I think this is something that obviously you all as business owners and as a food writer, Luke, are thinking about um, and patrons are thinking about as they weigh whether to come back, whether it's outdoors or indoors. Um, I, I want to bring in a caller. Anne from San Leandro has a, a comment about this. Anne, come on in. Hey, thank you. I just want to say that as the mom of a single mom who's a restaurant worker, I am not ready to go back into the restaurants. But the last 10 months, I have at least once a week, sometimes twice a week, gotten takeout food from a couple of my favorite restaurants here in the area just to support the workers who um, who rely on on business. I've been fortunate. I work at Highland Hospital. My income has not changed. My expenses have gone down. And so I've used some of that extra income to support the workers um, through takeout and my, um, I think I was always a decent tipper, but my tips have gone way up as well. And I just want to encourage other listeners who might be in my situation to, to do takeout if they're not comfortable going into restaurants. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. I mean, Luke, Sai, what are you hearing about this? I know that, um, I, I think we can all agree. It's a good thing that we they expanded vaccine opportunities um, not long ago to the food industry and restaurant workers. Um, is this something that you think is is really part of this conversation um, at the heart of it for a lot of these employees and owners as as they think about you know expanding service? Yeah, I think it's just a tough situation for restaurants um, because I think at the end of the day every customer, every diner's comfort level is going to be different. And regardless of vaccination, um, regardless of a lot of the uh, tremendous um, kind of safety measures that restaurants are taking, at the end of the day, it's still indoor dining is still kind of a relatively large group of people indoors who for much of the time have their masks off because they're eating. Um, and I think just for a while, a lot of people still aren't going to be comfortable with that. And I think um, restaurants certainly need to understand that that'll be the case. And it puts them in a rough spot because I think I'm sure Tanya and Jesse can attest to this. You know, most restaurants, like their whole business model is predicated on being able to serve people at 100 percent capacity of indoor dining and to be fully booked, you know, basically all the time, like that's the business model. So when you're at 25% or 50% and not sure if you're even going to be able to fill that, um, I think that that puts people in a tough spot. But I mean, I want to go back to what uh, the caller was saying about takeout, because I think the other way you can look at this, it's, it's sort of this double-edged sword, but I think solely from a customer perspective, I think the last year has been this like renaissance of takeout. You know, I mean, if you want to just look at it from a customer perspective, never before ever have there been so many like creative and wonderful takeout options just because 
um, like the chefs talked about, restaurants that never did take out before now are in the position where that's all that they can do. You know, so restaurants that never made sandwiches before now are like making really awesome sandwiches. You know, (laughs) Um, there's been this like renaissance, this flourishing of the bento box, like, you know, used to spend maybe a hundred dollars to go out and eat a nice restaurant meal. And now you can spend maybe 30, 40 bucks and get like a really, really nice um, sushi bento box, you know? And then beyond that, there are all these laid off chefs who have basically pivoted, you know, because they don't, they're not working. And a lot of them are now selling food just through Instagram, like kind of informally. Um, and so I've had like really amazing Singaporean laksa and really great Peruvian rotisserie chicken that are all kind of out of these quote unquote Instagram pandemic hustles that chefs have. One of my favorite examples of that was there was this Venezuelan chef um, who was laid off near the beginning of the pandemic. And he just started this um, arepa bike delivery service, you know, serving the sort of griddled uh, Venezuelan um, corn stuffed corn cakes, um, just serving them all over the city, like, and delivering them by hand on his bicycle. You know, I got actually, Luke, I want to interrupt you for a second. I have some um, folks writing in about this exact thing. Nancy writes, the increased availability of good takeout has been wonderful. I live alone, so I don't have a built-in companion for spontaneous eating out. So pre pandemic, I went to restaurants a lot less often than my partnered friends. I would have to plan ahead and find a friend to go with. Now I can have a good takeout meal anytime I want. Please restaurants keep it up um and christina tweets i've been ordering delivery it's so nice to enjoy the food of my favorite restaurant without being rushed out so they can fill tables at an economic pace as restaurants loosen up are they going to continue using delivery um jesse's of cool i mean what do you think you said before you guys didn't do that is that something that you think will stay in your toolbox even as things reopen i think it'll stay in all of our toolboxes because people are still going to be concerned and this is the only part of um, my personal life where I am conservative and we are taking care of our staff first. And I want to thank the caller, first of all, for bringing forth the issue of, um, of being willing to spend a little more money on food and on service. And when we started the pandemic, we we already were a broken industry. The, um, the food industry had, had deep issues of equity uh, across the board, not only pay, but racial and um, oh, gender and color. It was all there. And by figuring out ways to pay them more, um, we, are, we, we did not have to furlough anyone. We kept 14 people employed. And for the future, whether it's with to-go or dining in, for people to realize that it is um, important to pay people in our industry to take care of you. So rather than always looking at, um, okay, how do we, as Luke said, how do we get something less expensively? We might want to look at or ask the question when we tip or we have to pay a service charge, where is that money going? How am I supporting everyone who takes care of me and gives me a delicious meal, whether it's to go or in a restaurant, Whereas we used to ask the question, where does our food come from? Maybe it's time to ask the question of anything I add or the food I'm paying for, where is that going? How are we taking care of our beloved food industry that takes care of us? 
Absolutely. And I think this question of not just, uh, you know, patron safety, but worker safety is so important, right? We know that these are the workers on the front lines. Um, and I want to bring in George Rutherford. He is a medical doctor and infectious disease epidemiologist. He's been looking at this issue of restaurant safety. Dr. Rutherford, welcome back to Forum. Thanks very much. So can you kind of just lay the groundwork here? I mean, I think if there's one thing we've learned over the past year, it's that everybody's kind of um, assessment of what's safe and what isn't can be very different. <laughs> and um, we are seeing, you know, indoor opening at a, at a smaller capacity. Outdoor has been out, you know, happening for a while. Um, what do we know about safety? And, and I really want to make clear that when I ask that, I mean, for employees as well as those eating at these restaurants. Sure. And it's, you know, obviously you have to, to deal with the employees uh, first and the, and the patrons uh, second. But I, I think that the uh, the literature on this is is fairly solid. It's a little thin because uh, we get asked this about everything from gyms to, you know, libraries to everything in between. Um, there are, uh, there was a recent study from uh, MM in the CDC's weekly um, publication, which is called MMWR that looked at what happened with COVID deaths and COVID uh, cases uh, in counties that uh, got rid of, uh, that, that allowed opening of indoor dining. Um, and it, they, the rates for both went up. They didn't go up a lot. They went up about 3%, but it's still, you know, it, as opposed to counties that didn't do that, it's, uh, you know, it, it gives you some pause to think about this. Now, you know, are those the places that are the most prepared? You know, you can't control for all that stuff. So trying to create an evidentiary base around these individual uh, kinds of things is difficult. And so you have to, I think the health officers have largely um, gone to, looked at the CDC's playbook for uh, pandemic influenza and have interpreted from there. And, um, but I, I think that we're in now um, with outdoor dining, with some, with some space around people as we have, uh, you know, more and more people vaccinated. Um, I think that's um, that's safe. Uh, I think indoor dining with the current capacity limits is safe as well. My wife and I went to out to dinner on uh, on Wednesday at an indoor place. Now there were five tables in the whole place, and mm -hmm. um, you know people were buying picking up pickup the whole time. So I'm not quite sure how that works out for the business model, but it was nice to be back inside, and I felt perfectly safe being there. But I'm vaccinated too, so that's another issue. Right. And and I think if you're not vaccinated, there's also the question of who you're eating with, right? I mean, the safest thing would be to, with somebody from your own household. Is that correct? Correct. 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 Yeah. And that's, in fact, what what um, what um, at least San Francisco, they want, you know, if you're going to be uh, indoors, um, uh, if people are vaccinated, they, I think what the current recommendation is you can have two people from three households. If it's um, if it's outdoors, it's uh, it's a little bit more forgiving. All right. I might, it might be two people. I'm sorry. I, I had two households. <laughs> two households. I'd so have two to look people it up. from three I mean, households. That would be confusing. So I don't know how you guys keep it straight. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're living in multiple houses. Um, yeah. I, I want to bring in caller Frank from Oakland. Hello. Hey, Frank. What's on your mind? Hey. Uh, so uh, the point I wanted to make is I, I work at a grocery store that also has a deli. We do a lot of sandwiches and stuff. Uh, and it's now become sort of like a drive through because um, it's a lot of online orders. And um, that's frustrating because I don't want to work in a drive through but that's kind of what it feels like. Um, so it's, I, my my greatest skill is, is the personal touch, as uh, the owner of Brown Kitchen talked about. And I don't get to have that personal touch, so I'm just sending out sandwiches and 
salads and, and salmon and stuff. So it's, it's frustrating in that sense where I don't yeah. get to actually interact with customers. Sorry to hear that, Frank. Tanya Holland, I'm sure your chef miss, or your uh, staff misses some of this too, but I also want to hit back on this question of safety. I mean, I think one thing I've heard from, from friends in the industry is like they don't want to have to be the mask police. They, you know, they're, they're being, it's already a hard job to be a waiter or a waitress. Um, how are you thinking about training the staff and also just like setting sort of boundaries so that you all are not having to constantly maybe remind folks, um, of how to, how to act properly? Yeah, you know, it's challenging because it's such an intimate environment, you know, uh, dining and eating with people and also working in, in kitchens and uh, even front of the house. We are just, you know, we're always next to each other and, um, you know, we're working in smaller spaces. And I'm really concerned about the safety of my staff. And, you know, I'm in Oakland. I employ a lot of, uh, you know, BIPOC uh, people from communities who, have some concerns about being vaccinated. You know, it's it's a cultural thing where they're suspicious because of past traumas. And so, you know, it's like, do I have to, I'm thinking, you know, I can't force my, um, you know, my employees to get vaccinated, but I want them to be safe. So I'm trying to slowly uh, educate them on the importance of it. I myself have, I'm getting my second dose tomorrow. Um, and then, yeah, the, you know, the customers come in and we can't regulate, um, you know, like you said, who's vaccinated, who's not. And some might be more nonchalant about their safety. And, you know, once they're in the room, what we can do, what can we do? And again, it's not sustainable, a sustainable business model, as Luke said, because we have built our business models on operating at 100% capacity, 25% capacity. I'm going to be spending more money. Um, just to, you know, serve those tables than I could ever possibly make. So um, it just doesn't make a lot of sense to me at this time. Yeah. Well, I know one um, area that has been helpful to some restaurants is these outdoor parklets that a lot of cities are allowing. Rhonda writes, want to help restaurants. Let's keep all the parklets and closed streets ideally permanently, but at a minimum two to three years. We can eat outdoors in California all year. It's safer and makes a much far more pedestrian friendly communities. I'm fully vaccinated, but I don't want to eat indoors yet. And the restaurant should have a chance to discover. Uh, Caller Nicholas in San Francisco. Come on in. Hi. Hey, what's on your mind? You know, um, it, the, it was kind of the perfect pivot or segue. Um, I was the concern that I have, um, I'm just as nearly as a consumer is I live here in San Francisco. I started seeing all the parklets pop up and while their charm and excitement to sort of entice people to come back out, what I've seen in, um, many neighborhoods is it's become a bit of an issue with an already exasperating and an already bad problem with homelessness and, setting up camp. So there's sort of this uncleanliness that is now happening. And then the safety concern of vehicles just whizzing by since there weren't, these weren't done in a way where safety was paramount and thought of first. So my concern that I would say is, well, I love the charm of these outdoor dining facilities um, and space. The idea of keeping them long-term, it brings up a lot of other issues. Luke, so I jump in on this. I mean, I know that there's state lawmakers who are trying to um, ensure that 
things like the parklets might stay here, things like to-go sales of alcohol, which is very helpful to restaurants' bottom line. But a lot of these have been done in kind of temporary fashion because it all it, it's, it's all changed so quickly and, and multiple times over the past year. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. I think, um, yeah, I mean, just echoing the first caller, I think it's great um, that there has been this shift um, to putting focus on on allowing people to eat outside. Um, But I think a lot of those safety concerns um, and a lot of those other concerns are are very real. And I think um, the way that it's been rolled out has by necessity been kind of very ad hoc. You know, you sort of see um, sometimes on social media, people will post, you know, and I, and I certainly don't want to single anyone out, but I think there have a lot of been a lot of restaurants who have built these sort of outdoor dining, like kind of enclosed um, like right. structures that basically you know, to me, they look like you're basically eating inside, even though it's supposed to be outdoor dining. And I think just because everyone's scrambling just to survive, you know, and because everyone's having to pivot so quickly, you know, just on a dime, because the the regulations kept changing, what was allowed kept changing, um, that I think um, you definitely don't have a lot of uniformity in terms of like, like, what what feels safe, what feels okay. So I think um, certainly that's something that um, it's going to have to be looked at um, as we move forward into the future, because I do think um, that a lot of this is probably going to stay, you know, I think, um, you know, maybe not at every restaurant, but I think at a lot of restaurants, they'll, they'll try to keep this outdoor component moving forward. And just about 30 seconds till we got to go to break Dr. Rutherford. But I mean, is that fair to think that if something has three sides, it's not really outdoors? <laughs> Some uh, of these parklets. Does that, does that roof or no? Roof or no? Roof, I, roof. Yes, because I think so, a lot so the of state yeah. finally had to. The state finally had to issue uh, regulations about this, and it has to have. Uh, it has to have two walls. Um, it, it can't. It can't have more than two walls. So okay. I'm not quite sure how we're doing with the third wall. Maybe we're opening the windows, but. Uh, there was a little lunch at the uh, French Laundry that pushed this issue. As you know. <laughs> Just a little. We talked about that earlier this week. All right. We are talking about restaurant reopenings and how they've fared during the pandemic with Tanya Holland and Jesse's If Cool. They are both chefs and owners of fabulous restaurants. Luke Sai, KQED's food editor, and Dr. George Rutherford, an infectious disease epidemiologist. Are you a restaurant worker or owner or... Do you like eating in restaurants? What have you missed? Give us a call at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can connect on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or email us your questions to forum at kqed.org. We will be right back after this short break and continue talking about restaurants and the pandemic. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Marisa Lagos. We are talking about restaurants reopening and how they fared during the pandemic with the chef and owner of Brown Sugar Kitchen in Oakland, Tanya Holland. Flea Street Cafe in Menlo Park's Jesse Ziffkool. She is founder chef there. Luke Sai, food editor at KQED and Dr. George Rutherford. I want to bring in Lauren in Oakland. Lauren, what's on your mind? Thanks, Marisa. Thanks for taking my call. So I wanted to bring in the perspective of another industry totally tied in with restaurants, and that's food tours. So I own Local Food Adventures. I give food tours throughout Oakland and East Bay. And in fact, I've worked with Chef Holland's Brown Sugar Kitchen um, when they had their ferry outpost. So, um, Chef Holland, thanks so much for being one of my partners. Um, oh, I wanted yes, to sort of, of course. Yeah, of course. And so I wanted to get a perspective from the food tour business because, you know, we, you know, we work hand in hand with our restaurants and we've been on this roller coaster ride too. I mean, I, there's so much that's been said that resonates with me as a business owner, but also from personal safety of, for myself as a tour guide, as well as the tour guides that I have work for me. And, um, you know, one thing I wanted to mention is that we're probably not looking at giving um, in-person tours until 2022. And that's just because it has been such a roller coaster ride um, in terms of openings, closings. You know, some rest, some of our restaurant partners have closed entirely. Some have said, Lauren, when are you bringing back tour guests? We want everybody to come back. And others have said, we're not ready yet. So it's it's a bit of a maze. Um, I will say I give massive kudos to Chef Holland and all the restaurants that have pivoted and have created really great takeout experiences. Um, I know I've pivoted greatly, immediately went to gift boxes. So the idea was to experience Oakland and the East Bay through a box that now could be sent all across the country. And then I also do virtual events, too. So these are things that I'm seeing a lot of people in the food business um, do in order to sort of keep that in-person experience going. I know that was something that one of your other callers had mentioned about, you know, sort of missing that in-person experience as well, because that's so much about enjoying food, is enjoying the food, but also the people and the atmosphere and the energy that's surrounded um, in restaurants. So I just wanted to weigh in there and just give another perspective of another industry that's really been impacted. Well, good luck. Um, I want to um, read a listener tweet that says, I never use the delivery apps because of the huge margin hit it has on restaurants. I prefer to call my order indirectly and pick up instead and let the restaurant keep all my money. Have restaurant owners thought about creating a co-op or similar situation where the owners band together to create their own order and delivery service instead of money going to VCs and investors? Money would stay with the restaurants. Tanya or Jesse, I mean, what's your experience? I think I'm sure that these delivery apps are, are a double-edged sword in some ways for you all. Well, we, we started something called Pop the Trunk, and um, we tried the delivery services, but quite honestly, it just didn't feel comfortable to put our safe food into the hands of someone we didn't know. But, you know, talking about hospitality and the joy of what we get in, in, in being with people and suddenly not able to do it anymore, I think there are ways. And the ways we touch our bags and put little special touches in them is a, a very quiet behind the scene ways way to give our staff a sense of um, of caring for others. And in our industry, all of us, I know Tanya feels the same way. It is our first priority to take care of our staff first. It's like the old oxygen mask, mask theory where, you know, you got to take care of yourself so you can take care of others. And so um, that spills over to 
we're not going to go inside and feed people in the restaurant until our staff is completely safe. And if some don't get vaccinated, we're not going to open until we know from science that they are um, secure and safe and we'll stay outside and we'll keep hoping that people will order to go and we'll do our best to um, take care of them so that we can take care of others. So we do pop the trunk um, rather than delivery services and people call us, we take their bag out to them and put it in their car. Yeah. Uh, Tanya Holland, I mean, what are you using some of these delivery apps and, and does it make sense financially? Um, yes, we're using, um, you know, DoorDash and Caviar. They've merged and, um, you know, they actually reduced some of their rates and the DoorDash Corporation actually has been very generous, you know, with inviting chefs to have conversations about the industry and looking for other ways to support us. Um, so think we're getting maybe some of that back but also there's a big demand I mean you know a lot of customers aren't ready to come out so um, we have to listen to them I didn't have the bandwidth um, and also we're on Broadway in Oakland so I couldn't there's no place especially with the parklet in place for people to really pull up and you know grab food we would have a traffic jam so definitely (laughs) the delivery services help with that and some drivers pick up multiple orders etc and you know just come to I've just had to let things go you know my food is mostly hot food and you know there's some items I had to take off the menu waffles they don't travel well people are really upset with me but I refuse to compromise um you know that signature dish and um you know, I, we package it with care and we we hope it arrives in the way people expect it to. But nothing is going to take the place of, you know, being able to serve people in person on, you know, the china that we picked out on the tables that, you know, we had made with everything that's so intentional as uh, to contribute to the experience. Yeah. Well, Bill Stone, owner of Atlas Cafe in San Francisco, writes, the various rules set out by the local health department are complex and constantly changing. Some of the rules for patrons are actually hard to interpret and implement. We have at least eight required posters and protocol lists. I have rarely seen any customer read them. I'd like to add that most restaurant workers should be close to fully vaccinated by now. My staff is. Also, the outdoor seating is regulated by the Department of Public Works and the Fire Department. There are detailed regulations issued by them. I've had my outdoor parklet inspected three times so far by fire and dpw um i'm gonna bring in jillian in oakland jillian welcome to forum hi thank you for taking my call um i actually just wanted to to say i've eaten out twice um for in outdoor areas and it was such a different experience that i actually haven't gone back to eating out because the first one was passion fish in, in monterey and it was fantastic like they the wait staff wouldn't ap- approach the table unless you put your mask back on. So I felt like they were keeping their staff as well as us safe. Whereas the other one, you know, the, I went to put my mask on and the waitress said, oh, don't worry about it. Once you're sitting down, you don't need to wear a mask. And so it felt like they are taking everything very lightly. So unless I knew that a restaurant was having kind of following more strict rules, I wouldn't go back to eating. All right. Thanks, Jillian. Dr. Rutherford, I mean, what do you think about that? Obviously, every business is going to do things slightly differently, but um, it does seem like the lack of consistently could be difficult for both employees and patrons. 
Sure, sure. It's, yeah, I mean, it's difficult. I, what the health departments are trying to do is to protect the public's health um, and, and the least restrictive way possible, which is why this stuff gets constantly adjusted. And, you know, you, you know, the alternative is just to leave it as a very, you know, kind of at a very strict level. But I think they're trying hard to kind of meet everybody halfway. Um, it's so much different now than, say, in the middle of January. Right, you get a feel for how it's how it's evolved, and, un- and unfortunately, it's just the way it is. It's it's gonna we're gonna have to feel our way forward. We don't have, as I said, we don't have a great playbook about how to do this. And at this level, snap, you know, we can do whatever we want. Um, and I think uh, Jesse's, uh, you know, point about protecting the wait staff person, being really careful before you start jump to the next level is well taken. Um, so it kind of depends on your physical layout, I think, more well, than anything. on that, I mean, yeah. And I'm curious what, what the science shows. One thing I know that's happening, not just in restaurants, but in some other businesses are like plexiglass barriers. Um, what's the science behind that? And because it seems like, I mean, for a restaurant, that would be a big investment and also not look as nice, <laughs> obviously. It is it is not aesthetically pleasing. I'll give you that, especially when people start to carve their names in it, like in some <laughs> yeah, college bar. Um, I think that the you know it's just a way to keep uh, keep some separation. I don't you know I think you just keep physical separation uh, until we get a you know till we get enough people vaccinated that uh, we get to we get to close to herd immunity. I mean this is these are really kind of temporary fixes, uh, and I don't think we need to be thinking about this. How, how this is going to play out in the long term, I think in the long term, like a year from now, we'll be pretty much back to where we were two years ago. Now, having said that, I, I do like this idea of dining outdoors, and I do like the idea of parklets, and I do like the idea of street closures. Does any European capital in the summertime, there are tons of streets closed with, you know, with the, with the restaurants all outside. I think that's a, a great way to increase ventilation. I think it's a great way to increase the volume of the restaurants if they can, if the kitchens can hold it, can take it. Mm. Um, and I'm, I'm very much in favor of it. Jesse's of cool. We're getting some questions about vaccinations. I know Tanya Holland hit on this and, and the fact that there are people who are hesitant or, or, or mistrust the medical system. What's your experience been and, and how are you thinking about this as an owner? Because obviously, you know, your responsibility is to protect your entire staff. So we are just about um, all vaccinated. And I think what what we've decided from the beginning is that we manage others, that it's our responsibility to keep ourselves safe and to keep everyone else safe, no matter what that takes. And the opening up, the many times we've opened up, the scariest, the hardest thing is that others think, you know, our guests think that everything's gonna go back to the way it was. And the industry is broken. Remember, we have been broken for a year and we we are unable to just come back the way we were. So even by being vaccinated, we are still stumbling through what it means to take care of them again or to make sure first that we are safe. And the variables keep changing. And again, we are followers of science. We are going to make sure, even though we have to keep pivoting, that we're gonna do the best we can to keep our environments um, as um, as friendly, as kind, um, as um, as beautiful, as delicious as we can, but we are also um, going to take care of everyone. So we're not do- we're not going inside until everyone's vaccinated. Yeah, we're just not. 
Yeah, no. Um, I want to bring in Britt in Oakland. Oh, we lost Britt. <laughs> they were a server. I was hoping to get that perspective. Um, if we get if we get Britt back, we will bring her on. But um, Luke's, I, I mean, and I want to bring in Tanya and Jesse on this too, but what do you think is going to be the legacy of this past year in terms of these restaurants? I mean, we've talked about parklets. We've talked about, you know, other options uh, to go. Um, what do you see as maybe the good things that could be brought forward out of this in this industry? Sure. Um, and I, I think before I get to that, I think also I feel like we haven't really acknowledged as much in this conversation yet, just the tremendous number of restaurants that have not made it through the pandemic, you know, Absolutely. that have closed permanently. Um, just so I don't think we have good numbers yet um, to indicate how many there are, um, but there are just so many. And I think um, because um, every restaurant has a different relationship with its landlord and different agreements, um, we have not yet come close to seeing the last of that. You know, I think there are going to be a lot more restaurants that are going to close. Um, so I wanted to just acknowledge yeah, that. Yeah. Um, yeah. in, in, in terms of the silver lining, you know, I think uh, the the future of, say, like fine dining uh, in the Bay Area, I think is very much an open question. But a lot of the chefs that I have spoken to have told me um, that moving forward, um, restaurants are, are going to be a, a lot less formal um, and a lot more like good food, um, they tell me, will be more accessible to more people because I think the types of restaurants that are going to open and that are going to be able to stay open are going to be the restaurants that really prioritize that. Um, and I think also a lot of chefs who've been sort of laid off or cooks who've been laid off, you know, a lot of them are, are immigrant chefs um, or people of color who previous to this have been cooking someone else's food and someone else's cuisine. And I think what you've seen during the pandemic is a lot of those folks have started their own pop-ups where, you know, they're cooking their own food for the first time, their own culture's food. Yeah. Um, and some of them are having a lot of success doing that. And I think a lot of those will turn into permanent businesses um, at the end of this. Um, and so I, I would just say to, to listeners, um, if those are businesses that you believe in, if that's a future that you want, um, to please go and support those businesses. Absolutely. All right, we got Britt back in Oakland. Britt, welcome to Forum. Hey, thank you so much for taking my call. Um, I wanted to touch briefly as a person who works in the service industry um, about the caller who spoke um, to dining out and having a difficult time with a server asking her to maybe put her mask on or seeming like the rules were a little lax um, where she was. It's As a server, it's not easy to try and police people to put masks on. I think that, you know, you're, you're going to have people on both sides of it where people are very gracious about putting their mask back on. But I can't tell you the number of times that I've had people kind of get in my face asking them to, you know, cover up while we approach a table. It's not easy for us to be in that position to try and make people wear masks. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, are, is your experience, I mean, have, has it changed over the year in terms of how patrons are responding? Um, yes and no. I think that you know, early on, people were not dining out. I'm fortunate to work in a restaurant that does offer outdoor right now. Um, we're not seating indoors, but um, super happy to be 
you know, back at it. And we really want to be of service to people. And we really want to be able to provide an experience that, you know, that we know people are very eager about. People want to be out and people want to be, you know, back. It, it seems like most diners are trying to make it seem like the pandemic never happened. Mm-hmm. And that's difficult because, you know, we want to be there and we want to show up, but we all have to stay safe as well. It's it's a priority. Have you been offered a vaccine? Oh, yeah. I've been poked twice. Okay. Oh, so I'm fully vaccinated, <laughs> but there's a lot of my staff that hasn't. And, you know, it, that's a hard one, too, because a lot of guests will say, well, it's okay. I've been vaccinated. I don't have to wear a mask. And, you know, that's not true for all of us, especially a lot of our staff. Yeah. Britt, thank you so much for calling. It was really great to get the perspective of folks who are working in this industry. Oh, sure. You've got some of my favorite people on your panel. Today. <laughs> oh, good. And hey, Tanya, too. <laughs> hey, Tanya. <laughs> That's awesome. Tanya, um, just a minute or two left in the show. But I mean, are, is there anything that you are feel positive about moving forward that maybe has come out of this difficult time? Well, I think like uh, Jesse said, you know, our our industry was already broken. And I think that the pandemic really shined a light on the fragility of the restaurant industry also the importance of it, you know, what we contribute to the economy and the people that we employ who may not find employment in other places. And so there's now just this open conversation around, you know, how can we fix this? And for me, the nexus of COVID and the movement really um, highlighted my platform as a black woman in this industry, uh, as a black woman restaurateur. And, you know, I dare anyone to, to name, you know, another one on, one hand, um, if you can name five black women restaurateurs, I'll give you a gold star. Um, (laughs) And it's just, uh, it's great to have these conversations that are long overdue that, you know, and just everybody have this awareness. And the people who are at work, the few that are at work, the restaurants that have survived, and I'm very grateful that I have a supportive community and supportive um, investors are, you know, or we're all just grateful just to be here. All right. We'll leave it there. But yeah, we're grateful you're still here. We have been talking about restaurants reopening and the pandemic with Tanya Holland of Brown Sugar Kitchen, Jesse Zivkul of Flea Street Cafe, Luke Sai of KQED and Dr. George Rutherford. Thank you all so much. Uh, It was a great discussion. You have been listening to Forum. I'm Marisa Lago. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.